It's a pleasure to be here and be around so many hospitable people. Today we're going to talk about a skill that you're going to develop over the course of your entire career. And as you practice medicine, by far, your number one obligation is to do what's best for your patients, to be a patient advocate. But a close second is CYA, is just be sure to document to lower your liability and not only practice carefully, but spend your entire career frustrating plaintiff attorneys. And you're going to do that through proper documentation. There are many little things that take a fraction of a second for you to document routinely on charts. Like every time I see a sore throat, I'll put next supple because one out of 100,000 sore throats in an adult will progress to meningitis. And you know, in hindsight, they're gonna say, well, you should have known that. One out of 75,000 end up with epiglottitis. So you, you provide the minimal documentation to cover the absolute worst possibility of everything you see. And that's the way we all practice in emergency medicine. We always think the worst until we know otherwise. And that's one quality that makes us unique. Other physicians don't do that. They have an ongoing relationship with their patients. The only patients that you'll see over and over and over again are the ones that you don't, you don't want to see. The ones that come in at 2 o'clock every morning, the medics find them sleeping somewhere on a sidewalk, and you've seen them 20 times the first year of your residency. Uh, that's not really continuity, but for patients to come in with medical problems, you should, you should safely assume you'll never see them again, and so you provide the proper documentation. Now, the ED record serves a number of important functions. It is a legal document. In a lawsuit against an emergency physician, and I actually defended, I had a practice defending 110 emergency physicians my last nine years in New Orleans. I was in New Orleans forever until the hurricane in, in, in 2005. And there was another MDJD, George Martinez, who's, who's very prominent in, in, in our field of emergency medicine. And he and I self-insured our group of 110 emergency physicians. So everything that I've done as an attorney is to advocate on behalf of emergency physicians. Whether it was in the malpractice arena or in the public policy arena, uh, that's all we've done with our, with our law degrees. So if anyone is thinking about throwing something at me because I'm an attorney, um, I've, my basic motivation was to go to law school because uh, I got frustrated and, and angry enough to go. So I, I've only served as a physician advocate. So when, when there's a lawsuit against an emergency physician, the whole central document in the case is the ED record. And so you want an ED record that is as close to perfect as possible. And it sounds paranoid, but every ED record that you write up Consider it an exhibit in a lawsuit. That's how well your documentation should be. I remember when I was a first, second year resident, I was documenting too much. And in general, that's okay. It, it's rare to document too much and to make mistakes. People make mistakes when they scrib scribble one or two lines on a chest pain or, or a patient with a headache and a stiff neck. In general, the more you document, the better. But as you go through your career, your notes will be more focused 
and shorter. In other words, you, you'll write a very short note, but if someone has a headache, you're going to have the pertinent negatives that uh, gradual onset, it wasn't a thunderclap, headache, no photophobia, uh, neck is supple, it's not stiff, there's no Koenig, no Brodzinski. You focused on the head and neck and the neuro exam, and the other elements are not as important. So it takes time to write a note like that. Every headache, I always write the neck is supple, no Koenig, no Brodzinski. Why, why do you think I write that? For a headache. Some of those cases end up being a subarachnoid bleed or meningitis. We also use our ED record to communicate with people who take care of the patient a month later, a year later. And so you're writing a note that a colleague should be able to read. We use the chart to resolve document, resolve controversies, like at an M&M conference, for CQI peer review, and then, of course, to support billing. Now, you can go to billing seminars at national meetings, and much of what they tell you is the opposite of what I'm going to tell you this morning. And you'll realize that as you develop your documentation skills, you have to balance your need for fair compensation with your need to lower your risk, to lower your liability. And so some of the things the billers tell you are the opposite of what I would tell you because they're going to give you a lecture on how to maximize your reimbursement. And they'll tell you to use qualifiers like severe, acute. And you know, if you're going to send someone home, do you really want to exaggerate in, in the diagnosis? And then you send them home, and that chart's going to get blown up in front of a jury five years later. So you want to be careful about ever exaggerating the acuity or severity of a diagnosis. And I'll show you some other examples of different strategies to either maximize your recovery or minimize your liability. And as you, as you proceed into your practice, you'll reach a healthy medium where you, you document in a way that you adequately support your need for fair reimbursement with your need to protect yourselves. I know that Iowa is a relatively low-risk state with regard to litigation, and we don't have a malpractice crisis, we have a litigation crisis, because 80% of the cases against physicians are groundless. It's a national figure found in one study after another. So the crisis is a litigation crisis. But still, in a relatively low-risk state like Minnesota or Iowa, you're still paying far too much for your malpractice insurance. Now, the Joint Commission has general, general requirements and then specific standards for ED records. Like, if you ever wondered why in the ED record there's a little box that says, how did the patient get here, and what is their condition on discharge, and when was their last tetanus shot, and when was their last period. That all comes from specific Joint Commission requirements. So when they were designing your ED record, they had to take every one of these Joint Commission requirements into consideration. And so some of the little things that are you know, on the computer page of your ED chart might seem inane, 
but almost all of them are requirements. In general, always think what is the worst possible outcome and document for it. Like every time I see a medical headache in the ED, I'll say gradual onset. Because, why is that? Because with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, the two greatest nightmares with a medical headache are a subarachnoid bleed and meningitis. So I'll say gradual onset because with a, with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, it's the thunderclap onset. The worst headache of one's life is not all that important. There are close to six billion people in the world right now, all of whom will have their worst headache, some of whom will have their worst headache every time they come to the ED. Always, over and over and over again. So it's, it's the thunderclap onset of one's worst headache, and what are the two other arms of the triad? Neck pain and photophobia. And so when, when I'm documenting a medical headache, I'll, I'll say no neck pain, no photophobia, gradual onset. And then you think about meningitis, no fever, you know, no earache, no URI, no paramenangeal focus. And you try to look in the fundi and do a good neck and neuro exam. And that's a good pointed note for someone whose only symptom is a headache. So always think the worst and document document for it. Make sure all the joint, the joint commission requirements are fulfilled. A big thing they look at is whether we check condition on discharge. They get fixated on certain little things in our documentation. So when they come through the ED and they want to pull some charts, that's one of the little inane things they, they look for. But make sure that's been checked off. And certain key questions, like if your ED record has a box that says last tetanus shot, fill it in. You know, especially if it's trauma. Last period, if, if a woman's having abdominal pain, that box is there to prompt you. And whoever does your quality improvement wants that data on the chart. Always read the nurse's notes, always, for two reasons. Number one, the nurses almost always document better than we do. I'm convinced that this is a skill better taught in nursing school. Nurses are great at documenting. Okay, you want to get along with your ED nurses for many reasons. But, you know, we, in, the, in, the, in the hundred or so cases we defended over the last nine years, I would say that um, in three quarters of the cases, the nurse's notes saved us. I sat, I did very little expert witness work, but we had medical review panels in Louisiana, and you were obligated to sit on a panel if you were named. So the plaintiff picks an expert, the defense picks an expert, and the two experts pick a third expert. So I wound up on a panel, it was a chest pain case, and the physician was using a T-sheet and his entire note was a bunch of slashes and X's and the things that he didn't X off, we, we didn't even know if he asked those questions. It was really a terrible note. The nurse writes a note on this 43-year-old patient, sharp pain only in left shoulder when he threw a softball from right field. That's the only time he had the pain. And when he took a deep breath, it hurt a little bit. So it was sharp, pleuritic, very positional, pain in someone who had minimal or no risk factors. 
He told three different people that the pain was only in his left shoulder and arm. So what are the qualities that, that lead you furthest away from a presumptive diagnosis of acute coronary syndrome? Sharp, pleuritic, positional pain with chest wall tenderness. Those are the four qualities that lead you most strongly away from an ACS diagnosis. The nurse wrote all that. I ended up having to testify trial because if you're on a panel in Louisiana, you're obligated to show up for the trial. And um, the physician won. The guy later had an MI. He went to another hospital with the same crazy story. And then while he was sitting in the waiting room, finally developed chest pain. And we argued that, you know, that's when his MI, that's when he had his MI, when he first started having chest pain in the second hospital. And, and I, I testified that his pain was so bizarre and so atypical that no emergency physician in his right mind would have started a cardiac orca. And the jury understood that. So it's, it's probably the most extreme case I can think of where the nurse's note was so outstanding and the physician's note was so terrible, and it was the nurse who saved the physician. So the, the other reason to look at nurse's notes, there, there are often going to be discrepancies. If most of you probably know right now, if everyone in this row interviewed the same patient, you would get 10 different histories. It, it's amazing. Patients change their histories. I'm not sure why. And so if the nurse says the patient has chest pain and the patient didn't tell you that and you send them out, people with risk factors drop dead. I mean, they drop dead a day after you see them, a week later, a month later, the family gets an attorney and says, oh, we got this doctor nailed because your husband told the nurse that he had chest pain and the doctor was so careless, he didn't document it. So you have to document discrepancies. You look at the nurse's note and you don't, you don't engage in finger pointing. You don't say the nurse was wrong. The patient never said he had chest pain. You, you manage a situation like this in a constructive way. You say, well, despite the information on the triage sheet, the patient, you know, 10, 15 a.m. denies ever having chest pain. Or despite what the patient told the nurse, he now denies that he ever had chest pain today. So you address it in a constructive way instead of saying, you know, the nurse doesn't know what she's doing and she took a wrong history. And I've seen, I've seen people write notes like that. Avoid danger words. You know, if you're going to say someone has acute or severe, um, you know, they're writhing around in pain and uh, they have a board-like abdomen and, and you get the workup and they haven't perfed, and it really wasn't a board-like abdomen, and the rest of the workup's normal, how are you ever going to send the patient home? So, so be, be careful of the adjectives and the qualifiers you use in your diagnoses. Always, 100% of the time over the rest of your career, specifically address abnormal vital signs. I mean, plaintiff attorneys, plaintiff attorneys don't know medicine. I was telling someone last night that at least four or five plaintiff attorneys told me they knew as much medicine as I did. They really think they do. You know, some of them get MD consult now and they read three or four articles on something and they're, they're the expert. So they think they know a lot, but they really don't. But this is a very simple thing for them to do. They look at an abnormal vital sign that you didn't address 
and they're going to convince a jury that you were negligent. So there's some nights that I work and the nurse says that everyone's respiratory rate is 20. Is that normal? What's a normal respiratory rate? Closer to 16. And, and there's, yeah, what I end up doing, I go out to the triage nurse and I say, you know what, if you estimate that everyone's respiratory rate is normal, why don't you put 16? But they'll put 20 all night long and I'm standing there redoing the vital signs because that's, maybe that person needs a PE workup. You know, maybe they're dehydrated and acidotic and they're hyperventilating. If someone's heart rate is 105, address that in your note. You know, assessment. Mild tachycardia secondary to pain, anxiety, dehydration, fever, low-grade fever, you know, from, from a tonsillitis. Always address, it's just a good habit to get into, addressing every abnormal vital sign. Document times. I would advise you to time every single note you ever put on any ED record. Just compulsively put the time. I had a surgery resident last month get pretty angry, comes walking over to me and says, why did you put the time of consult? It took him three hours to come down. And I said, I did that because I time every note that I ever write during my entire career. I time everything. And by the way, that's a good thing to put a time on, the time of consult. What do you think happens when someone lays in an ED with appendicitis and then 10 hours later perfs? It's always your fault, unless you document all the times. You know, now everyone wants a CT for every case of possible appendicitis, and it's not always indicated. The ones that come in with classical findings should go right to the operating room. Sometimes you'll wait eight hours for a CT in some hospitals. But document every time. And then someone's going to get in your face and not like the fact that you documented it the time you consulted them. And that's a good answer. I time every note I ever write on every patient. Be honest. And I know that sounds obvious. But let me give you a couple of examples that will get you angry. I've been at depositions where a plaintiff attorney says, Doctor, what does P-E-R-R-L-A mean? She gave the answer, and then she says, well, the A means accommodation. How many 80-year-olds can accommodate? It's impossible. So then her next question was, doctor, what other lies did you document on this chart? You know, I felt like under the table, stomping on her foot, but that's, that, would, that would violate legal decorum. But that's an example of, of what they do. How about cranial nerves intact? They'll say, doctor, how did you test the first cranial nerve? Did you test the patient's olfactory nerve? I, typi I typically put three through 12 intact. And if I have a Snellen chart and I have the time, I'll put two through 12 intact. You have to be very particular about what you write. I go to CLE meetings. I, I don't have to go anymore because I'm not practicing in Louisiana. But you know, at a lot of these CLE meetings, they learned how to conduct dirty tricks at depositions. That's constructive knowledge for a lot of attorneys. That's what they learn about, how to trick people at depositions and in front of a jury. So be, not only be honest, but be very precise. 
Avoid the cute chart. Don't call a patient a gomer on the chart. There was a chapter, ASEP actually has a nice book on risk management, and there's an example of an ED in Michigan, and whenever one of their regulars rolled in, someone who was picked up off the ground drunk, brought to the ED to sober up, they had a rubber stamp of a turkey, that he was a turkey. And the guy laid there for hours and was not only drunk but had some occult head trauma and died. And so the case got litigated, and the nurse who stamped the chart had to explain in front of the jury why she put that turkey on the chart. So that's not an appropriate medium for which to be funny on a chart. The chart is it's import, it's an important document, and there, there's really nothing funny about an ED chart. It's a good idea to write interval notes. The Joint Commission expects that when someone's vital signs change, you write a second note. So when they come and do their hospital inspection and they come to the ED and pull records, I was involved in at least four, five Joint Commission inspections. They always want to look at an asthma chart. Now, why is that? Well, that's because 100% of the time when asthmatics come in, their vital signs will, will change. And they want to see if you wrote an interval note after the vital signs changed. Like the typical asthmatic might come in with a resp respiratory rate of 30, and when they leave, it better be a lot less than 30. And did you write an interval note? And the way I've always approached that as the attending, uh, it, I would write my note closer to the end, and I would say discharge note, you know, reviewed house officer note, these are the findings of my exam at this time, MDM, uh, patient stable for medical, medical decision-making note, stable for transfer, this is our plan. And I time it, and so they see we have at least two interval notes. Now, some places where you work actually want you to handwrite out every lab result, uh, the EKG findings and the chest x-ray, because that's, that's pretty strong proof that you saw all the results. Like plaintiff attorneys will often allege, you didn't see this, you didn't see that. I would advise you to at least write out the abnormal findings, the ones that are important. You know, if the phosphate is just a tad low, that's not too important, but if the K is 7.5, write that down and it shows that you uh, saw that. You know, the K is 7.5, the QT interval is 0.6. The things that are important, write them out. And if you have an electronic chart, you can type it into your record. So there's no ambivalence, there's no question as to whether or not you saw these abnormalities. Now, this is important, and this is kind of controversial. Some people will do a workup, say of chest pain, and you're sure it's not cardiac. And so the patient gets discharged with a diagnosis, chest pain etiology unknown. Acute chest pain etiology unknown. Abdominal pain etiology unknown. And if you go to a billing seminar, they'll tell you these are great diagnoses. Now you and I know they're not diagnoses but they correspond to an ICD-9 billing code. And I'm told the reimbursement is great from both of those ICD-9 billing codes. Very good reimbursement. And when you go to national billing seminars, I went to a national billing sem seminar at an ASAP meeting, and that's what this speaker, very well-known 
speaker in that area. He gives billing seminars all the time. He said, these are great diagnoses for reimbursement. These are bad diagnoses for liability. This, this, this tends to explode your, your liability exposure. Let's say you've got someone with atyp very atypical chest pain, but they've got every risk factor known to man, morbid obesity, they smoke, have high blood pressure, diabetes, strong family history. That's someone who could drop over at any time, an hour after they go home, a day later, a month later. The plaintiff, plaintiff attorney sees chest pain etiology unknown, blows that up in front of the jury, and then hammers away at you for an hour. Well, doctor, you knew my client had all these risk factors. You knew she came in with severe chest pain. You proved in your diagnosis you had no idea what was going on. You, you can imagine what a plaintiff attorney can do with a non-diagnosis like that. You're much better off with a reasonable, presumptive diagnosis that's wrong. Think about that. A reasonable, presumptive diagnosis that's wrong. What if you said it was chest wall strain and, and it ended up being GERD or costochondritis? The important thing is you know that it's not an acute coronary syndrome. Even if you missed an aortic dissection and the case did not present anything like a dissection and your presumptive diagnosis was reasonable, you never want to do anything bad for a patient. You don't want that outcome. But things happen, and it's terrible when bad things happen to a patient. The second most terrible thing is for something bad to happen to you, okay? Now, if you have a reasonable presumptive diagnosis that's wrong, why is that not negligence in most cases? There's several different definitions of negligence that the law uses. One definition of negligence is the failure to use reasonable behavior. You are expected to act like the reasonable, prudent emergency physician. Reasonable and prudent. And if your presumptive diagnosis is reasonable and prudent but wrong, that's not negligence. Failure to diagnose does not equal negligence. Any questions about that? Everyone heard that? Well, that, that is a risk, but I, I would advise you not to complacently uh, rest on a previous diagnosis. One other thing, as a national standard of practice, it's understood that emergency department diagnoses are presumptive. You know, all of you have rotated on a medicine service where it took weeks to make the right diagnosis. One of our practice managers brought her daughter-in-law into our ED with abdominal pain. Six months later, the diagnosis of non-tropical sprue was made. How many of you have diagnosed that on an ED visit? There you go, your residency director. <laughs> so, it, you know, it, it's assumed that all of our diagnoses are presumptive. But that's a good point you bring up, and I would tell you not to rest on not to rest on a past diagnosis, because remember, that diagnosis was presumptive. I understand your point about uh, not, not just leaving it as an unknown diagnosis, that's not an unknown etiology. And I certainly have gotten the instruction, that's what I should be doing. 
uh, it's my type of practice then to do that to put diagnosis you know, or set the audio clear, but then I add a second line or in my course I write what I've considered, diagnosis I've considered and ruled out or tried to rule out. Uh, key, very unlikely, not to support coronary syndrome, whatever, you know, no evidence of being diagnosed. Is that any, is that dependable, is that a good practice, bad practice in your experience? What you might want to do, you might want to, you know, above where you put your diagnosis, you might want to put assessment, chest pain, etiology unknown, and then put a precise, more precise diagnosis. Now, is this recommendation that I'm giving you, is it evidence-based? How much information given to you by defense attorneys do you think is evidence-based? It, it's not. It's, law is the exact opposite of science, okay? So, but if you talk to defense attorneys, the more you talk to, you'll get a better feel for this. They'll tell you that they shudder when they see these etiology unknown diagnoses because plaintiff attorneys love that. They love to show it to um, juries. And then what you get hit with is, you know, her husband had chest pain. And even though you had no idea what the etiology was, you callously sent him home. If you didn't know the etiology, why are you sending him home? And non-scientific people, are not, they're not going to connect with any other argument. They're going to say, well, that doctor knew he had high blood pressure knew he had, um, was overweight, had a bad family history, smoked all day long, should have admitted him. So, you know, sometimes I have residents that I work with, they, they love to put that because they've gone to a billing seminar or whatever, and I'll say, just put that as your assessment, chest pain, etiology unknown, and then write the most precise diagnosis you can think of. Because again, and this bears repeating, a reasonable, reasonable presumptive diagnosis that's wrong is not negligent because it's reasonable. Reasonableness and negligence are opposite. They're totally exclusive terms. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the old adage is that if you get four attorneys in a room, you'll get five opinions. But, <laughs> and again, because it's not science, but uh, I think a lot of a lot of attorneys would tell you otherwise. It, it's, it's an area of controversy, but it, it goes back to the point that when you're reasonable, you're not negligent. And this was a reasonable, presumptive diagnosis. And your whole note supports why it's reasonable, because the patient had chest wall tenderness, and it was sharp pain, it was pleuritic, it was positional. And the reasonable diagnosis, you know, is a muscular injury. So, you know, it, it also depends on how the case is litigated. And maybe he litigates cases in a way where he says, well, this shows the doctor was thoughtful and, and looked at a whole wide range of diagnoses, all of which he knew were unlikely and sent the patient home. Yeah, it, I, I've seen cases where etiology unknown diagnoses are put up in front of the jury with, on a, with a slide projector, and in one case, they kept it on the wall the whole time the plaintiff presented her, her case. It was up there for hours, etiology unknown, and the, her attorney kept using those words, etiology unknown, and had an effect on a, on a, 
on a jury. We had a case, it was one of the few we settled. We, we got rid of most of our cases with, uh, without paying anything. This was a back pain. Um, and the patient died three days after going home with his lower back pain. He died from a perforated posterior gastric ulcer. And our doctor's diagnosis was back pain. And for an hour and a half, she argued with the plaintiff attorney that back pain was a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis. And the whole thing in the deposition went so poorly. And she wouldn't even say what she, you know, what precise diagnosis she thought the patient had. And so then the plaintiff attorney said, why did you send him home and this and that. And, but the deposition went so poorly, we settled it right after the deposition. She wouldn't, she couldn't come up with any kind of precise diagnosis. And she said it was just back pain. So it, you can consider that an opinion. And as you go through your training, maybe you'll get some other opinions. But I'm, all, I'm always afraid to use the etiology unknown ICD-9 diagnosis. Um, it, the recovery, when you use this as a billing code, is good. You should know that. And maybe this goes back to the old balance you're going to need to achieve between needing fair reimbursement and minimizing your liability. But I think if you talk to a lot of attorneys, they'll tell you they're uncomfortable with the etiology unknown. Maybe it's not a universal rec recommendation. Did ever, everyone hear that? What, what if someone ends up with a benign diagnosis like costochondritis and you did a $5,000 workup, cardiac enzymes, a whole bunch of other things? Well, that decision should fairly be based on the patient's presenting complaints and not the ultimate diagnosis. Uh, there was a bill before the House of Representatives called the Cardin Bill that ASEP co-sponsored. Co and it said that reimbursement from third-party payers should be based on a prudent layperson rule. That if a prudent layperson, a reasonable layperson, has symptoms that are concerning, that should determine the decision whether or not a third-party payer will give you reimbursement. If someone's having the worst headache of their life with neck pain and photophobia and they have a Koenig and Brzezinski sign and it turns out to be a tension headache, third-party payer should pay for the entire workup. And if you've got insurance companies that only pay based on the ultimate diagnosis, and I know that still happens, probably happens frequently, then you have an argument on your hands that they should pay based on the presenting symptoms and findings. You know, I've seen a lot of people write a note, and then when they run out of room, the writing gets real small. I used to tease my chief, because then he would write along the side of the paper. He would even write along. I'd have to keep turning a paper around. And you're really, you're cheating yourself. If, I mean, say what you want to say, and if you get to, to the end of the page, get a progress sheet. You know, get a continuation form. Don't cut your planned documentation short. What should you, how do you handle a charting error? What do you all do? You write a word that you shouldn't write. How do you show that you made an error? We use a transcript. You use what? We use a transcript. Well, 
I didn't hear you. Electronic. Let's say you're working. Right. Don't obliterate it. Don't go like this. You want other people to see what you erase because a plaintiff attorney is going to allege who knows what. You know. Uh, so you put one line through. Write the word void in your initials and time it. That's the best way to make a correction. Use the word void and not error. I saw one case where the physician used error, and then the plaintiff attorney said, doctor, how many other errors did you make on my client? <laughs> what about after the fact charting? Your shift is over. Your shift is over, and you realize you should have charted something else. Um, you know, that someone has uh, severe neck pain, and you did the Kernighan Brzezinski, and you didn't chart it, and you want to go back and add that, and your shift is over, and you saw her at 10 a.m., and now it's 7 p.m. Well, you can, you can document a late entry. Nurses do this all the time. They call them late entries. But you've got to put the time, you know, 7, 10 p.m. Uh, I also performed a Kernighan Brzezinski test, and the results were negative and you sign that. Okay, that's the only safe way to do that. Don't ever, I keep pushing this to advance the slide. Don't ever alter a chart after the fact. Back in the early 80s in JAMA, there was an article. It was just a series of six case studies of physicians who uh, surreptitiously altered the chart. And I remember one of the cases there was a child in a pediatrician's office who had a URI on a, on a Wednesday, and then on Friday the kid died from meningitis. And he went back to the chart, didn't post-date it or anything, and he, he added to his exam, neck supple, free range of motion, non-tender, no Koenig, no Brzezinski. The problem is his office manager already copied the chart and sent it to the biller. And the plaintiff discovered both charts. And so it was revealed to the jury that the doctor altered the chart. And it's quite possible, it, it's probable, he did not lie. He did nothing dishonest. He probably did those tests, okay? But he added it after the fact, and the jury hated him. And they, they wanted to punish him. And even though the plaintiff otherwise didn't show any negligence, I mean, he got, he got wiped out in the case. I forget how much money they got, but when a jury finds out that you've doctored up the chart, your history, I mean, the case is over. Always address the complaints. You know, I, I don't know what it's like here, but we would get patients you walk into a room and you'll get all 28 complaints that occurred in the last six months because a lot of our patients didn't have good access to the healthcare system. And the nurse, the triage nurse documented the chief complaint was abdominal pain and dysuria, but they're telling you about neck pain and headache and chest pain and this and that. And eight hours later, they're ready to go and you realize the dysuria was something the patient didn't even care about, but that was her chief complaint the triage, and you may send her home without even addressing the chief complaint, and then she comes back five days later with urosepsis. So always look at the chart. 
the chief complaint on arrival at triage, the chief complaint the patient told you about, always address the documented patient complaints. That's a real basic. You know, like addressing every abnormality in vital signs, this is another basic. What about minors? In some states, minors can actually consent for their own medical care. I don't think I was one of those states. But regardless of the law, don't make minors wait for emergent care. You know, if someone shows up at 8 a.m., you can immediately document, you know, I tried to locate the parents, neither is available, and this child's wheezing, and the respiratory rate's 60, and I'm going to treat her. So you don't wait to treat children with emergencies. You know, I think my clock is slow. What time is it? 8.20? When did I start? Okay, so we're done at 8.30. Okay. Yeah, I think we're almost done. Now, with regard to resident supervision, and this is for your attendings, uh, HICFA now CMS has what's called the PATH audit, physicians at teaching hospitals, and they don't want faculty billing for your work. The reason is because Medicare pays your salaries and benefits. You may not have realized that through two line items called DME, direct medical education expenses, and IME, the indirect medical education expenses. So um, CMS takes the position, they've already paid for your work, why should your attending bill for your work? That's double billing. But the faculty can bill for a patient you've seen if the faculty comes behind you and also examines the patient, and you can you can understand a rationale where that might be necessary in every case. So the faculty comes behind you and does their own exam. The faculty can write a note where they refer to your history. The faculty doesn't have to repeat your history. Like I, I can say reviewed above you know, history per house officer. Uh, on my exam, I agree with the above findings. I also found an S3 gallop, RALS, and jugular venous distension at 45 degrees. My assessment is CHF, MDM, you have to put your medical decision-making plan, and so on and so forth. So the faculty can satisfy the path audit criteria really with a pretty short note if the house officer has a detailed note. You can still, you can, you can bill separately. Don't ever write on the chart, incident report filed. Why write that? You know, unless you really want to help a plaintiff attorney, okay? Some plaintiff attorneys take malpractice cases even though they don't have a lot of experience in that field. They don't know what an incident report is. An incident report is discoverable, okay? It can't be kept secret because it's something we routinely do. Anything that you do routinely in the clinical realm, you can't hide from a plaintiff or her attorney. It's discoverable. So once they know there's an incident report, they can get their hands on it. We talked about this before. Whenever the clinical parameters of a patient change, you write another note. It's a good idea for the physician to write last on the chart. And finally, dictated notes, this has been well studied, give you much better information. We tend to document more and we document better if we have dictated notes. Now, can anyone sign out against medical advice in your emergency department? 
what are the exceptions? Who can't sign out against medical advice? What's the determining issue? Mental capacity. Capacity to understand. Uh, judges like to think that they're the only ones who determine mental, you know, mental capacity. Because in most states, there are mental capacity uh, or mental competency hearings. So you don't want to go to court and get a judge angry at you. So I don't use that term. I use the term clinical capacity to understand. And every time you have someone sign out AMA, you've got to have a mental status note. What do you think happens when someone signs out AMA and goes home and dies? The only way, the only way that a family has a case against you is if they allege that she was so confused, you should have known that she didn't have the ability to make decisions. And that's what they say in cases like this. So put a mental status note. You know, if the Folstein exam is great, I use a far abbreviated form that just takes me a few minutes, but a note on their mental status capacity. Sometimes it's inane to stand there and ask people to, you know, give you serial sevens when they're calling you every four letter name in the book and they're violent. And so I'll write a conclusory note, you know, patient is awake, alert, and has the capacity to understand. And that strikes at the art of medicine and, and goes a long way in court that you knew to document they had the capacity to understand. What do you think most physicians write when they let a patient go AMA? Nothing. They don't write anything. So the fact that you know this, you're far ahead of the game. Mental status is more important than anything else. And one other thing, what do you do with the patient that says, I'm not signing that? I say, fine, goodbye. But what do you owe someone who signs out AMA? You have a lot of obligations toward them. You have to come up with the best treatment plan at the time, do the most reasonable thing, try to get them follow up. What do you owe people who refuse to sign AMA? That's a desertion. This is what you owe them, okay? So if they didn't get follow up, they didn't get their prescriptions, very similar. You're judging, you're judging whether or not they have an altered sensorium. The Folstein's a good way to do it. It takes a long time. Uh, I'll be here for a, while, for a while. I can show you the little mnemonic I use that has the five most common findings of delirium. That's usually what we deal with in the ED. Delirium from trauma, from alcohol. And that's, that's going to save you. So what do you do if they're not um, coherent enough to, uh, you feel that they're making the right decision? They don't, they don't just seem coherent like a drunk intoxicated person. You treat them. You get a court order. You get a court order. You can get a court order in most cities within 15 minutes. It's the same magistrate that's on call to issue uh, arrest warrants, search and seizure warrants. So in your county, there's a magistrate always on call. You explain the situation, and you'll get a court order. I've done that several times. You don't usually have to do that too often. Um, you know why? Because if someone rushes into an ED and they've had a significant injury, or just the fact they rushed into an ED, a jury can understand that you don't rush into an emergency department just to torture the doctor and nurses. They're, that patient must have thought that he had a life-threatening illness. You know, and they were so in incapacitated, they wouldn't let you help them. 
So this sounds paranoid, but you know what? A certain amount of paranoia is very healthy in the emergency department. We practice in a high-risk area, and really, every time I look at a chart, it just flashes across my mind, how will this chart look in court? And if you're not satisfied, you need documentation that's just a little better. Now, when you discharge someone, put specific actions and times. Follow-up PRN is never enough. You know, you probably have these printed up discharge sheets that I'm sure are done pretty well. You don't have too many of those? But, but most of them are time specific. Like if you're having back pain, follow up in seven to 10 days. They should all be time specific. Always give patients the option to come back sooner. And this is a national standard of practice to use language understood by a fifth grader. And you know, we don't like to be patronizing to any of our patients, but this is a national standard of practice. If you use complicated language, a plaintiff attorney will jump on that. What kind of, what the plaintiff attorney will say, what's this mean? Severe, what's that word mean? And to put the diagnosis somewhere on the discharge papers. What type of home care and activities can they engage in it's good for you to instruct the patient. Don't just write out the discharge instructions, give them to the nurse, and don't talk to the patient. It's good the last time you walk by the patient, say, look, I'd like you to take Motrin three times a day, use a heating pad, and stay in bed just tomorrow. You know, call your primary care physician on Monday. It doesn't take that long. Mm -hmm. It is, it is. You know why? You're allowed to testify as to what you do as a matter of practice. And so you can say, I always instruct the patient myself. I never discharge a patient without saying goodbye to the patient and giving instruction myself. I do that as a matter of habit. Now, this, these are just a handful of things that, that I do routinely. And, you know, plaintiff attorneys have a certain repertoire, a certain, it's a cheap way to assess cases. Like every time a doctor gives a sedative and a patient has a car accident, automatic lawsuit. You know, your doctor didn't tell you not to drive after taking Benadryl. Your doctor told you if you take Dilantin, you can't drive. Patients are not, don't have to have any common sense at all when they sue you. You know, you're responsible for everything. So I'll tell you, every single time I write a prescription for Ativan, uh, Norflex, Flexeril, Benadryl, I put it right on the prescription. You know, one tab, TID, don't drive. Take your Dilantin, three caps at bedtime, don't drive. Even though they're not allowed to drive, doesn't matter. If a patient tells me they, they don't drive, they don't even own a car, I put it on the prescription. It's a good habit. I could do a case law search on the computer for you right now on a search engine that I use. Hundreds of cases from all over the country, and these are all appellate cases, with Benadryl, muscle relaxants, benzodiazepines. Someone gets into a car accident, it's like hitting the daily number because then you can call a plaintiff attorney and sue your doctor. It should be, but I wouldn't delegate it to anyone else, but you're right. Uh, you know, they, 
Evidence, current evidence shows that there are 50,000 admissions per year in the United States and 10,000 deaths from NSAIDs. Every time I write a prescription for NSAIDs, under history I put negative GI history tolerates NSAIDs. I mean, it's, it's this much writing. I do it every time I give an NSAID. We had four lawsuits from our group when, I, when, when Katrina hit. Uh, two of the patients got one dose of Toradol. In, in one of the cases, the nurse was smart enough to say, no GI history currently taking NSAIDs. Another example of where the nurse saved us. That case didn't go anywhere. Well, the last part of my talk, you know, I go through the five most common high-risk ED presentations. And since we're running low on time, I at least want to go through chest pain. Because undiagnosed MI is the number one area of liability in emergency medicine, internal medicine, and family practice. In emergency medicine, nothing else comes close. 30% of all of our losses in malpractice litigation come from un undiagnosed MI. And you'll see why. I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of good reasons why this happens. You know, in, in your workup, what determines whether or not you admit a patient with chest pain? That comes in what part of your workup? The history. Every cardiologist will tell you that when you're done taking a good history, your mind is made up whether or not a patient has to be admitted. I can show you a lot of sources that say enzymes play no role in the decision who to admit. And the most important reason is because 80 to 90% of people who are admitted and have ACS have unstable angina. And, and you can't depend on enzymes to diagnose unstable angina. So there's a long learning curve with you know, the whole chest pain issue. A lot of my second and third year residents still need work on this. And it's, it's because you can't order one test and get an answer. Now, with chest pain especially, document, document all times, because now we have all these, these so-called so quality parameters where a patient has to get an EKG within five minutes of arrival. I mean, a charity hospital, it, would, it used to take four hours to sign in. So a, a lot of these parameters are not uh, realistic. And I happen to think, and this is my opinion, that all these clinical parameters that we write are just a boondoggle for plaintiff attorneys. Like all these elaborate uh, practice guidelines we have. Because if you deviate this much from a practice guideline, a plaintiff attorney is going to call that malpractice. So I don't think these practice guidelines are all that helpful, and they just, I think at some point, are going to lead to a tidal wave of litigation, as if we don't have enough, enough now. So document all times, we, because now we have these other criteria where the patient should go to the cath lab within 30 minutes of arrival. Okay, they should get their TPA or have the balloon go up or the stent put in, you know, within 30 minutes, 45 minutes. If they're being transferred, they should be within the other cath lab within 45 minutes or so. So we have all these time criteria, and plaintiff attorneys are going to say that we committed malpractice if we're not that timely. <coughs> Eugene Brownwald, who was the editor of Harvard and wrote his own textbook, The Heart, probably the country's most preeminent cardiologist, he says there are three components to the history. 
describing the character of the pain, the risk factors, and the associated symptoms. Of those three, by far, what is most important? Characterizing the pain. And these are my longest notes. There's no way to write a short note on these chest pain patients. You know, we all have mnemonics, like I use the OPQRST, onset palliation, quality, radiation severity, other temporal relationships. There's some other mnemonics out there, but in, in, in detail, succinctly, but in detail, you've got to describe the character of the pain, list the associated symptoms, the risk factors. The findings of your exam, uh, the most common reason to file a lawsuit in patients with chest pain is failure to diagnose. Number two is a misdiagnosis on the EKG, so you should write your EKG findings. The computer is not always right. Studies have shown that the computer is often right, but not always. And the third leading uh, cause for litigation involves so-called treatment errors. You didn't give the patient TPA, you didn't um, transfer them to a, a PCI lab, a lab that performs percutaneous coronary interventions. That's the third leading cause for litigation. I'd, I'd like to stop here. I, I did similar things with abdominal pain because in a lot of series, undiagnosed appendicitis is a number two area of liability. Undiagnosed sepsis or meningitis in a neonate, ectopic pregnancy, the severe medical headache. And the information on the handout is, is very obvious, but I, I'll be here all morning. And if you have any questions about the other information in the handout, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. But get the basics down well. Be compulsive about your documentation. Explain every aberrancy in your vital signs. Explain abnormal findings. And again, if your diagnoses are, are always considered presumptive in the emergency department, and a reasonable presumptive diagnosis that's wrong is not negligence. But if you have other attorneys who come here and talk to you, get a collection of opinions, but it's not an area where you'll get an evidence-based opinion. It, it's a matter of what, how attorneys feel through the experience of their litigation. Any questions?